0: We want to talk a little bit more about masks and the idea of wearing masks. And is it becoming uh, more commonplace, whether you're taking transit or going into grocery stores or other shops? Well, my next guest would like to see a more stringent mask policy when it comes to this province. Uh, Dr. Anna Wolak joins me now, a family physician, also part of the group Masks for BC, which is part of the bigger group Masks for Canada. Dr. Wolak, thanks so much for uh, taking some time with us today. Thank you for having me. When you talk about a mandatory mask policy or a more uh, meaty mask policy, what what does that look like to you?
1: So we are hoping for a mask policy for indoor masking, uh, sorry, for mandatory masking to be required in three places. And we're talking ACT, all indoor places outside of your home. So schools, businesses, hospitals, um, C being in crowds. So even if you're outside, but in an area where you can't physically distance yourself easily, like if you're on the beach and there are crowds of people there. And T, which we are very happy to see was transit.
0: Right. Although with the transit one, I thought it was interesting and a good move that the mask policy is going to be mandatory masks on transit. But do you fear that it sends a bit of a mixed message in? It was announced, but the date is August 24th, where you would think if if it's that important, it should have started today. Why are we waiting until the 24th of August to make that mandatory?
1: So I certainly cannot speak for the province or for TransLink or Transit BC, but I don't know if it has to do with... Maybe making sure that we aren't disadvantaging people who don't who haven't been wearing masks regularly and don't routinely have masks and they need to source masks, I'm not sure if that's the reasoning behind it, certainly that's one that I could think of because one of the things that our group is saying is we don't want this to be punitive and we don't want it to be um, giving a disadvantage to to people um in general we want everybody to be, we we want the mask mandatory mandated policy to be um, non-restrictive for people. So if people can't get masks, um, we don't want them to be disadvantaged from getting onto transit.
0: Right. And the health authority has said that too, that there are people that for some reasons, whether it's a medical reason, a physical reason, can't actually wear a mask. What about the efficiency? Because it seems like every time we talk about this, someone brings out the point that it doesn't, that or, or questions the efficiency of this. And, and the reminder being, well, it's not about you. It's not about reducing the spread of the virus, of, of getting it, of taking it in. It's about reducing whatever you're putting out there.
1: Exactly. So we look at um, the slogan that we like to say is my mask protects you. Your mask protects me. We're, we, the efficacy of protecting the virus particles and the size and all of that, we're trying to, we, we know the virus is, is carried on droplets. And so what we're trying to do is track those droplets and um it's the same thing as when we teach kids to sneeze or cough into their elbow we're trying to trap those droplets we're trying to use the mask to basically trap that so that you're not um coughing less than a foot away from somebody and spreading that those droplets to someone it's getting trapped in your mask if everybody is wearing a mask then we're protecting everybody else around you and you know by some logic you're also kind of getting you're not getting those those droplets um up against you as well for that sort of reason the one of the things that we would like to see as well is an education about what sort of masks there should be we're seeing a lot of those masks that are vented Mm -hmm. they have vents on the side but um those masks actually do not protect others it's what it is is those are those are ports that actually you have to exhale harder to, um, to, to breathe out of that. And so rather than being protective, and I know people are wearing it because they think it's protective. Um, it's actually not. And when I see somebody who is wearing that sort of mask, I walk as far away as I can because I know that their mask is actually letting
0: droplets out. Exactly. And there's a reason why those masks don't fog up your glasses. If you're wearing glasses, it's because everything's going out through the mask. But you you raise an excellent point, though, because people are still wearing those masks. I see them on transit. I see them on the street. So if somebody feels like they're doing their part and wearing that mask, but really they're not doing anything.
1: Exactly. So that's, that's, that's one of the things with the mask mandate as well. What we've seen, this pandemic is, is science, like living science. The general public isn't always um, um, party to this, where we see the science evolving. Do masks help? Do masks not help? Do we, should we be hand-washing? Should we be quarantining groceries? All of that. There, the, it's changing. It's changed in the six months that we've been living with this. And so what we're hoping with the mask mandate is if it's clear and says you have to wear a mask, um, and then we can work on the education of it. What masks can you use? Which masks are better? There is a new study that's come out that initially we thought those fleece gaiters would work. But in fact, what we're, a study came out last night which said, no, actually, the gaiters are worse than even not wearing a mask. It's spreading more particulate matter, more droplets. So we want the focus to be on the education Um rather than on the debates. Uh,
0: Because I also see, in in addition to the masks with the vents and the masks that you've mentioned that we now know don't actually work, I also every day see people wearing masks below their noses and think, you realize the test is in your nose. That's where they test for the virus. So if you're not covering your nose, you're not protecting anybody.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, and, but a lot of people are doing that thinking they are protecting others. And it's, it's with the good intentions. And that's why we want the education out there. As part of this mandate, we want to remove the we want to remove as much confusion as possible. The masks will add an extra layer of physical protection and the education adds that extra layer of
0: protection as well. Uh, you mentioned that transit of the of the ABCs or a uh, what you went through. ACT, ACT exactly. Yes. Um, do, do you think that's an easier one, though, to get buy in? Or it seems to me that it would be easier to also mandate Okay. Every time you step inside a public building, you throw the mask on. That's what they've done in some other provinces. That 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 might be easier than saying you also need to do this if you're outside and you're and you're in crowds or or where you actually kind of have to know the distance where you are and and, and if you're safe or not. Does it? Yeah. Do you think it would be easier to get public buy-in to say okay, as of now, all public places?
1: Well, that's why we were saying that's what our A is. Is A is all indoor places outside of your own home. So. Anywhere you go that's inside, when you go in a shop, in a grocery store, like as it is now, I think different grocery stores have different rules.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: right? You go into one grocery store, you have to wear a mask, you go into another one, and you don't have to. And it can get confusing. And um, it's, w- masks are not meant to replace what we already have in place. Masks are not meant to replace physical distancing or hand hygiene. But it's really hard to know how far away six feet actually is. Exactly. Um, and, you know, when you're in the grocery store and you really want to get that carton of eggs and there's somebody standing, behind, standing in front of you, umming and ahhing as to which eggs to get, you know, the temptation to just lean in and get those eggs, you're breaking that six feet.
0: Well, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, interesting. Uh, we'll see if things do change or if we have uh, more strict rules coming in B.C. Dr. Wolak, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for
0: having me. All right. to Anna Wolak, family physician and advocate for mandatory masks in those scenarios. Let's go back, though, to one of the stories you've been hearing about in the news. And workers in B.C.'s tourism industry, particularly at hotels in this province, have started a hunger strike outside the B.C. legislature. And to find out more about what is behind this and what the workers are asking for, we are joined by Michelle Travis, a spokesperson with Unite Here Local 40. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, So what has happened today so far?
3: So this morning, uh, hotel workers, laid off hotel workers, uh, joined by faith leaders and uh, members of the community, uh, launched an open-ended fast today. Uh, in front of the B.C. legislature, uh, where they will be every day for the next, for the next several weeks uh, until we see some action from the government that they will take action to provide protection for workers, uh, to provide a pathway back to their jobs. And what we mean by that is to ensure that workers laid off in the hotel sector um, will have the right to return to their jobs as the, as the industry recovers. Um, and so, what we what we mean by that is that if you've been laid off, um, and most hotel workers have been laid off since mid March. Uh, when the pandemic hit um, and through no, no fault of their own, um, we're saying we understand that it's going to take a while for the industry to recover. Um, we just want to make sure that workers will be first in line to go back to their, go back to their jobs when it's time to go back. Uh,
0: a lot of people have found themselves in that scenario being laid off mm-hmm. through mo- no uh, fault of their own. Have hotel mm-hmm. workers all been in a different scenario or have they, uh, for the most part, been able to access uh, the aid that's come, be it provincial or federal?
3: Um, I think yes, that, that is true. A lot of folks have been affected by by the pandemic through a fault of their own and, and laid off. Um, what we see with the hotel sector, it was really one of the first sectors to be hit uh, and hit hard, and it will be one of the last to recover. Um, you know, because workers have been laid off since mid-March, they have been accessing CERB. Um, uh, some employers have used the wage subsidy program, but not enough. Um, and unfortunately, CERB is winding down. And for many hotel workers, they're, they're on their last, uh, they're on their last payment and they'll be soon switching over to EI. Uh, and that's challenging because you have to have a certain amount of hours to uh, to, as a basis of your benefit, and and that won't be a lot of money. And it's very difficult out there. Um, Workers are not finding other jobs to support themselves. And hotel workers, uh, surprisingly, a lot of them have been in this industry a long time. They love the work. Um, They've spent dedicated years of their lives to building decent wages, um, decent benefits, and these are jobs they want to return to, and they want to get back to welcoming the guests that they have long welcomed and you understand it's going to take a while for the industry to recover but um you know because the industry is so hard hit we feel the the hotel industry deserves uh, particular attention from the from the legislature
0: and when we say the the term kind of the catch-all hotel workers are we talking about everybody all types of positions or is there one particular area that's harder hit than others
3: no, across the hotel, whether you're talking about a room attendant, you're talking about a server in the hotel restaurant, um, uh, you can have a concierge, uh, bellman, front desk agents, you, you name it. Um, they've all they've all been feeling the impact of, of the pandemic, and and while they're on layoff, they they're concerned that they're going to be losing their jobs. And what we've seen in some hotels, um, most recently in the Pan Pacific and the Shangri La. Um, where laid-off workers have faced mass terminations um, before the, ch- the hotels have really had a chance to, to get back on their feet. And we're concerned that one of the things we're seeing happening there is that not only are the terminations happening, um, not giving workers a chance to come back as the industry gets better, but are also seeing uh, their labor standards impacted. The Pan-Pacific workers told that they need to choose between giving up their full-time status, becoming casual on-call workers, uh, waiving their right to severance, or lose their job. And that's not a choice that workers should have to make. And that strikes us as an employer taking advantage of the pandemic. And what we don't want to see is, you know, while there's a we're in a depression, uh, you know, era moment for the hotel sector that uh, employers let go of their staff. But as the industry improves, they replace them with folks that they can pay for much less. And that that isn't right. And we don't want to see that happen here.
0: Uh, So what are you calling for from the provincial government?
3: Um, well, whether it's through regu- uh, regulation or legislation, we think the, 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 the province really needs to step up and figure out how do they uh, provide some sort of legal guarantee for workers to return to their jobs. Uh, kind of similar to the steps that the government's taken when they have provided protection to tenants to prevent them from being, ev- from being evicted. Um, you know, what we want to see is some uh, some action from the government to say, look, if you lost your job because of COVID, um, you've got a pathway back when it's time to go back. We don't want to see people arbitrarily fired, um, you know, while we're in the midst of this pandemic. And we know how successful the hotel industry was. The tourism sector has been um, up until COVID hit. Uh, right now, the sector is asking for $680 million in, in bailout relief from the province. We're saying, look, if you we understand the industry's hard hit, you want to provide bailout relief for the industry, you've got to provide some sort of security, some, some sense of certainty for workers that they can return to their jobs. Um, as conditions get better because we know it will get better eventually may not be the rest of this year and maybe next year maybe into 2022 unfortunately but eventually the industry we, we do believe will recover
0: and are we seeing that in some areas as well and that we've talked to to other parts of the tourism industry saying that with everybody now kind of doing the staycation and with more people staying in bc granted it's not taking the place of all of the international travelers we would normally have but in some places unfortunately not in the big city centers but in other other parts, the Okanagan and other parts of the province, there is that that come back and they're busy.
3: There is a there is a bit of a lift, I think, from the summer where where, um, you know, folks within B.C. who after months of the pandemic, they're restless and, and ready to get out there again. Um, the, the challenge that we're going to see here is that, you know, that is, you know, we're seeing that in some sort of resort areas. We aren't seeing that in some of the major hotel markets like Vancouver, like Victoria. Um, and what we're concerned about is that come come September, that business is going to drop off for those resort hotels as well. Um, and it's going to, they're going to be much fewer hours um, we're concerned about a, a second wave of COVID. Um, the, the border does not appear to be, is the, the border restrictions with the states don't appear to be as if they'll be lifted anytime soon. Um, And and so we're just concerned long term that it's not I don't think it's going to be a a, a strong fall for any hotel, even even the ones are seeing a little bit of a bump right now.
0: And just before I let you go. So what is the plan then at the legislature? How many people are going to be there? And and does fasting mean they're not going to be eating at all or what are they going to do? That's right. That's right. So fasting means they're foregoing food.
3: Um, They will be taking water. And today there are 10 fasters uh, on the lawn today. um, We'll see another 20 fasters um, joining over the course of the next couple of weeks. um, And the numbers we expect to increase as we continue the fast.
0: All right. I'm sure we'll check in with you again. Michelle, thanks though uh, for today for bringing us up to date, uh, up to speed on this. Sure. Thank you for having me. That's Michelle Travis, a spokesperson with Unite Here, Local 40. We're going to talk a little bit more about how things have changed when it comes to the deep cleaning. Whether you've gone back to the gym, you've likely noticed the sanitizing of the machinery, of the equipment. I was at the grocery store yesterday. The cart was soaking wet. I can only assume that's because it was just cleaned. At least I'm hoping it was because it was just cleaned. We have temperature checks in different situations. But do these measures actually make us safer? Let's bring in Jason Tetro once again. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He is on the line with us. Jason, thanks so much for being here.
2: Hey, great to be joining you.
0: Uh, Do these measures make us safer or do they just make us feel better?
2: Well, the thing is that when you see these types of things happening, um, it's commonly referred to as sort of theatrics or uh, someone just recently coined or thought he coined a phrase called hygiene theater. Um, But the fact is that hygiene theater has been around for a very, very long time and it's used in a way to be able to demonstrate to the public that um, hygienic measures are being done and that they too should be taking part of it. So there's two ways of looking at what's going on. The first one is to essentially, you know, kill whatever happens to be there and give confidence to the public that wherever they're going is safe, but it's also a way of getting the public to join in and show that they can play a role as well in making sure everybody is safe. But Is it actually preventing a virus from getting from one surface to you? Well, I've said this probably since that New England Journal of Medicine paper came out. It's the first forty five minutes to two hours that's a real problem from a surface, and then after that, eh, it doesn't matter
0: uh, so it is, yeah exactly, so it is it's a probably a good practice, but it's it's not giving us this this hundred percent or the the protection that maybe we are thinking it does
2: no and and I think the it was never intended to be that way and and we have talked about this where it's like if you are sort of depending on something such as a, uh, you know, a cleaning. Well, just put it this way. Um, if you have a bed rail in a hospital and it just get, it gets cleaned and it's absolutely safe and then somebody visits grandma and they put their hands on that bed rail, all of a sudden the bed rail is contaminated again. So it, it, it it's more for show than it is for really, um, you know, making sure that you're safe.
0: What about the issue as well with temperature checks? And even if we look at them at airports, we've had Canada's chief medical officer saying they don't really do anything, that mm-hmm. you cannot have a temperature and still have COVID-19. You could have a temperature for any number of reasons. And it's, and there's no, it's not as though it's done when you enter the airport. It's different in every airport. In Vancouver, it's done before you go through security, but you've already perhaps talked to somebody at checkout you've stood in various lineups you've been around the airport at other airports I've heard it's done before you get on the plane so you've already been in the airport for a couple of hours before anyone does it what's the point of that
2: yeah so what's happening with the temperature screening is it's giving the uh, authorities um, one possible way of being able to stop something from happening um, such as a spread of an infectious disease Um, now it all depends on who they're trying to protect if they're trying to protect people that are getting onto a plane, then you're going to try and do it before you get on, before security. Um, if I'm, if you go to the Far East, um, you know, you see the temperature, uh, they actually have monitors, they they don't even have people, and they're monitoring your temperature constantly before you come into the country. And that way they're trying to prevent the country from coming down with uh, uh, an outbreak. So the temperature really isn't going to make a difference in the overall spread, But if you happen to be one of these quote-unquote critical cases where you really should be checked immediately, it will pick that up.
0: What other measures do you think could be done? Or I know you've talked a lot about masks. So we were chatting earlier with a group called Masks for BC. Uh, They applaud the fact that in BC it is going to be mandatory on transit. Mm -hmm. They would like to see it in all indoor places as well as outdoors if you're in a situation where there's crowds. Would that be a more effective way of stopping the spread?
2: Well, as we've known from the past with other viruses, the minute that you incorporate barrier protection into a population, you stop the virus. (laughs) So yes, Um, what you also have to realize is that there are, are two ways that this virus can spread. The first one is through the respiratory route. So that's why the barrier protection masks is gonna be a really good thing. But also, it may also spread through the hands. And this is where we do get into this idea of surfaces possibly being involved. But the fact is, is that if you use a hand sanitizer or even soap and water, it kills the virus, you're good to go. So basically, the combination of those two things is going to be able to stop an outbreak. And we know this because we've seen it before with flu, with common cold, with RSV, and all sorts of other respiratory viruses. Uh,
0: We talked about masks earlier on the show today, and a caller uh, called in saying she she can't wear uh, the mask, but she's taken to wearing a face shield. And I know you've been asked this before and have talked Mm about this. Does a shield offer... the same level or some level of protection? Yeah, a shield is definitely
2: going to give you more protection than nothing at all. Uh, and actually, here in Edmonton, we're going to be giving out cards to people who simply cannot wear masks for medical reasons. So, I mean, we are going to get into a point where uh, people are not going to be able to put on a face covering over their respiratory tract. However, if you can put on a face shield or something that allows you to continue breathing without any difficulties and it will still protect you, it's a great way to follow. So we're going to see this, um, you know, uh groups of of protections increase in size and number variety whatever so that everybody has an opportunity to stay safe and then it really comes down to the individual uh, themselves to you know make sure they're they're following one of these options.
0: Uh, Is it even something though do you think flying with flying now the requirement that you wear a face covering could a shield be used in a situation like that?
2: Yeah. Actually, that's probably the best thing. Um, And the reason for that is if you've got a face shield, you can still have access to your mouth. The face shield is going to protect you from the downward stream of air. And anyone who's been in an airplane as of late knows that the air really is coming down from the top to you. The only time the air is coming up is usually through the vents, and those vents have got filters in them, so you know you're getting pretty clean air. And as for the people around you from side to side to side, well, the fact is that you know all you have to do is bend your head down, the face shield will come across with your chest and, you know, you're pretty safe.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, what else do you think people should be doing? Or there, there is this fear now. We've seen an increase in cases in BC, unfortunately. Uh, what else do people need to be doing at this point to stop uh, things from getting even worse uh, come fall? Well,
2: right now, we have to start figuring out how we're going to sort of live for the next six to eight months, maybe even a year, um, in the cohort mentality. And as we've seen, the majority of cases that are happening where we're getting these outbreaks, where we're getting those clusters, are in people who are either mixing their cohorts or they're simply avoiding the whole concept of cohort altogether. Now, I'm not going to blame bars or parties or, or, you know, nursing homes or anything like that, because at the end of the day, anywhere where you have a gathering of people who are not within the same cohort and you know that your your status is going to put other people at risk. So that's what you need to do. Forget about the blame. Focus on your cohort. And when as you do that, then you're going to be able to make sure that you can go into any environment, whether it be a movie theater, whether it be um, a, a mall, whether it be a classroom, even your office you're gonna be able to know how to stay safe because you've got that cohort mentality.
0: How big can a cohort safely be?
2: That can be really difficult depending on how you look at what a cohort is. But I would say that you're probably maxing out at around 20 people to uh, really be sure that you've got a a handle on things. And that's just simply because um, when you have more than that, you're going to have people who are going to trail away from your cohort and start, you know, visiting other cohorts. And that can run into trouble.
0: Right. Because even if you're in a cohort, you're in that cohort and you're taking the leap of faith that everybody else, including yourself, that everybody is taking the same precautions and following the rules.
2: Oh, yeah. And I mean, the whole idea of cheating on your friends is going to take a (laughs) (laughs) Totally different concept when we start realizing that people are going to want to get out of their cohorts. They've just been married to their cohorts for too long, and they've just got to go out and enjoy some other cohort. We're going to hit that. It's going to happen. But at the end of the day, if we all have that mentality, then that will be sort of, um, you know, Something that happens irregularly, as opposed to frequently. Uh,
0: so we had a situation in Vancouver on Saturday night when a party bus pulled up to a, a local hotel, and between twenty and thirty people came out. The manager of the hotel said it was like a clown car; they just kept coming out of this bus, <laughs> and they wanted they wanted to go in. And he said, "No, there, there's too many of you. You've all been drinking. You're, I have no guarantee you're going to follow the rules. You can't yes. you can't come in here." Was that the right move? Oh yeah, absolutely.
2: And. It's, it's an establishment that is owned in a corporate sense. So that person has the ability to simply close the doors and say, you do not come in. Right. I mean, it sounds like an extreme example of, you know, no shirt, no shoes, no mask, no service. But at the end of the day, if you want to maintain that cohort mentality, you've got to make sure that you don't allow people who simply are not going to follow that uh, into your establishment.
0: There are people saying, uh, saying, though, that they're shocked that party buses are still even operating. But if that's a cohort, the 20 people that are on that bus, can that be done safely?
2: I think if you have an actual cohort that can show that they're negative, um, you're going to have to do like we used to do back in the day with uh, another virus. You're going to have to get the testing. You're going to have to have the, the records to show that you have the testing. Remember, in the 1970s, it was what was your sign? And then in the 80s, it was what was your status? So it's just going to go back to that. So make sure you've always got your negative testing with you, and and that's going to help to maintain the integrity of your cohort.
0: All right. We'll leave it there. Jason, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Take care. That's Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Well, you've been seeing, likely, and hearing this story on the news. A B.C. black bear was killed after some residents admit that they left food out so they could get videos and pictures of the bear. So what does this tell us as far as bears in more urban settings and our... Actions and the behavior of people when it comes to the bears. Uh, Lucy Cadman joins me now with the North Shore Black Bear Society. Lucy, thanks so much for being with us.
4: Thank you for inviting us on.
0: Uh, it's a horribly sad story of this bear, which had been known as Huckleberry. The bear had a name because it was very well known; became very popular. What happened in this case, though?
4: Uh, well, with this bear is actually living very close to the neighborhood uh, where I'm located at the base of Seymour Mountain. Uh, Very fortunate to live in a beautiful area. Many areas on the North Shore are by uh, creeks uh, and rivers and green spaces. So it's typical for us to see bear activity in residential areas here on the North Shore. Bears travel extensively in search of food. Now, we encountered this bear, first of all, in early June. Um, The first report was of him accessing um, a Strata complex organics cart. And unfortunately, the enclosure door had been left open I was very close to my home, so I attended really just to make sure that people weren't crowding the bear for photographs, trapping them in a tree, um, dogs harassing the bear. So it's really just an opportunity for us to provide education. Um, In that situation, though, we were right by the forest, so I was able to approach the bear, uh, use a firm tone, and move the bear on from that organics. um, And the bear very calmly left um, and went back into the forest. We received... Um, A few more reports about him accessing berries on the edge of the forest. Again, just attending to make sure people weren't harassing this bear. Uh, He got his name because he was eating lots and lots of huckleberries in the area. Now, we don't typically name bears, uh, but it helps us to keep track uh, of the activity um, to identify individuals. Um, So it's something that we've started to do this year as we're having more encounters with bears on the North Shore. There aren't more bears, but there are certainly more people out and about to report the activity and we do like to attend just to provide that education. And then uh, we receiving many reports of Huckleberry Access and, unfortunately, on unatt- um, accessible organics and garbage carts. Now, here in the district of North Vancouver, um, we have lockable garbage carts, uh, but they're very small carabiner locks. And they're really designed to keep out raccoons and crows. They're in no way bear proof. Um, But we are seeing that residents are under the impression that these carts are bear proof and they now store them outside of a garage or shed. So there's much more accessible food for these bears. Now, when every time we've encountered huckleberry, we've very calmly and easily been able to move them on until the last time that we had an encounter. Again, that started with a report that he was on the edge of the forest uh, by a
0: residential area just eating berries.
4: And what happened?
0: Sorry, what was different that time?
4: Uh, so we went out to, to find him, just as again, just to keep uh, people away from, from crowding the bear. I actually didn't find him by the forest. I found him. Uh, by seeing people running down the street with their cell phones and uh, that's typically something that we'll see uh, when we're in areas with bear activity. Uh, Bears get reported on Facebook, on other social media platforms and we're seeing an increase in people driving from other neighborhoods bringing their children, uh, bringing children outside and people crowding bears in residential areas and that's what we encountered. Uh, The last time that we met Huckleberry he was eating from An accessible organics cart, I believe the resident had gone on vacation and left the cart full of compost, food scraps, uh, and the cart was unlocked, so very, very easily accessible. And when we attended, about 30 people were out on the street, crowding us there for a video, which made it very difficult for us to then move him on safely, so we weren't able to do that. Uh, Later on in the afternoon, he was found in another area, eating from a garbage can, and
0: that's where he was tranquilized by the Conservation Officer Service and later later killed. Did you talk to any of the, the 30 people or try and explain to them why that was such dangerous behavior for the bear? Absolutely, we did. So when we realized
4: that there were too many people in order for us to safely move Huckleberry along, we did education um, on that street. We spoke to many residents. It's an area that we visited many times. Uh, with print material, educational door-to-door material. Um, And we did get some people uh, to go inside, Uh, they eventually complied. But this is something that we're encountering when we're in areas doing um, education. Uh, Very recently we're in Lynn Valley, we noticed about 40 people crowding the base of a tree uh, and a young bear was in that tree. And residents had rushed outside to take photographs, brought their children and all they were doing essentially is trapping that bear in a residential area. It took about 45 minutes for us to convince people to please go inside, be quiet, watch from the window, um, so that the bear can feel safe enough to climb down the tree and go back into the forest. Now, after about three minutes of everybody being inside, that's exactly what the bear did. So our human behavior, as well as having accessible food sources, is having a huge impact on these bears' lives, and they ultimately pay the price the ultimate price.
0: Uh, whenever we unfortunately hear stories like this, there are always uh, questions about relocation and why mm. bears are, are euthanized instead of relocated.
4: Yeah, yeah uh, well, we like to let people know that relocation is, is not a solution. It's often not an option. Um, the Conservation Office Service, the provincial agency that manages the wildlife, um, often don't have the resources to do much enforcement, non-lethal management. So unfortunately, many of the times when they're attending to these bear reports, um, it's, it's to remove that, that, that bear from the population, unfortunately. That's why we see between 500 to 1,000 black bears killed every year in British Columbia just for being present in residential areas. Relocation cannot be the solution either. Um, the street where we last saw Huckleberry, within two days, another bear had already occupied that space. And that's what we see. These communities become sinkholes. Bears come, they're killed, and another bear very quickly fills the void. So we're trying to promote tolerance, a respect for the fact that these bears have lived here on the the North Shore long before people. Um, We promote responsible coexistence, so making sure that we're securing any food sources around our homes that encourages them to stay. But just absolutely remembering that we live on wildlife corridors, and it is normal to see Bears traveling through residential areas here on the North Shore. The bears that we typically see in residential areas are the vulnerable population. Younger bears, just like Huckleberry, we believe it was about two and a half years old. Females with cubs, they choose to live on the periphery of urban environments to keep themselves safer from older, dominant bears that get the best habitats much further away from people. So they're not only seeking natural foods in the community, Um, They're seeking safety, and of course then they'll supplement their natural diet with any food that we leave available to them. They're intelligent animals, but they cannot understand the consequences, the fatal life-ending consequences for them when they feed from a fruit tree, a bird feeder, a garbage can.
0: Do you think the death sentence for this bear, was it the food that was left out, or was it the crowds of people trying to take photos and videos?
4: It's a combination of those, those two factors. So what we're absolutely seeing is that people are allowing bears to eat from garbage cans, bird feeders and such. And the priority is not moving the bear along. It's getting a photograph or a video for social media. We always promote moving the bears on from a safe place. If you have a bear on your property, from a deck or an open window, use a deep, firm tone to move that bear on. They won't run away. Bears don't run from people. That's normal. They're adapting to seeing more people and dogs in their home. And they don't run away every time they see people. Uh, They'd have no energy left to survive. So the bears will move on. We make it a negative experience. The idea is not to frighten the bears. We don't want bears to be afraid of people, but we want to set the boundaries and let them know they're not welcome uh, on properties. We should not allow them to become comfortable and residential properties. Ultimately, uh, they will pay with their lives for that.
0: All right, uh, Lucy, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us uh, to, to explain a bit more about what happened in this scenario. Thanks so much. Appreciate the opportunity. All right, Lucy Cadman is with the North Shore Black Bear Society. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, alcohol consumption is now A-OK at four plazas in Vancouver. I believe some other cities, as far as parks, Chilliwack, I was reading as well, has opened up some of its park space for alcohol consumption, should people choose to do so. But looking at the Vancouver plazas, one being outside the Vancouver Art Gallery, the North Plaza, it opened up at noon today. And three other plazas as well, Lot 19 at Hornby and West Hastings, Butte Robson Plaza on the South Side, and the 17th and Cambie Temporary Plaza as well. Those three open daily for alcohol consumption from 11, p- uh, 11 a.m. until 9 p.m. And this is a pilot program. The goal is to let people enjoy a beverage while outside, while socially distancing, while enjoying the lovely summer weather in Vancouver, and helps people who don't have access to private outdoor space. Well, at one of the plazas today, there is going to be a special speaking engagement happening tonight at 6 and Aaron Chapman who is the author of Vancouver After Dark is going to be leading that. Aaron joins us now to talk a bit more about it. Aaron thanks so much for joining us.
5: Good to be with you. Thanks.
0: Well what are you going to be doing at the plaza today?
5: Well I'm going to be reading a few excerpts from some of my books. uh, Vancouver After Dark Liquor Lesson of the Law, Live at the Commodore Uh, And but getting focusing a little bit on some of the maybe a little bit of the history of booze in Vancouver, since it seems appropriate (laughs) Uh, and and some of the sort of we've often had a bit of a a reluctant history with alcohol in the city. But in a way, I mean, the city was founded on it because of Gassy Jack's tavern that he first built, which the city, of course, uh, came around. So it's an interesting thing. It'll be fun. uh, It'll be a fun talk. I'll be reading some sort of interesting and some fun stories out from some of the books and talking a little bit about that history. Um, and in a, you know, in a socially distance acceptable environment where we're all treated as adults, and we can have a glass of wine and, and uh, be able to uh, hang out a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, given the history of Vancouver's relationship with alcohol, does it seem surreal that you're going to be doing this in public, outdoors, and when you look out and see people drinking alcohol instead of <laughs> gasping, you'll look out saying, oh, that's allowed, we're allowed to do that now?
5: I, I think so. You know, a few, just a few years ago, this would have been unheard of. So I think it's a great thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a fun thing, especially, you know, for a lot of people who don't have access to a public space or be able to get outside and... Maybe you know meet their neighbors in in the in the community. It's it's a it's a it's a fun and easy way, and it's a safe way, I think, to do it that we're, that can be done responsibly.
0: Uh, how many people, or do you have any idea how many uh, people you're expecting?
5: Well, it's a small, you know, it's not a big space, so uh, you know, I'm, I'm expecting probably no more than you know thirty or forty people at the very very most. There might be some people sort of hanging out for a couple minutes and moving on or passing through and whatnot. It's that kind of space. Um, I know they're arranging the benches in a certain way that everything will be socially distanced in an acceptable way. And I, you know, I'm a fairly loud talker, so I could probably talk through a mask. I don't know if I will. But uh, I may take it off to the speak, but I'll be a good two meters away from everybody as well. So you don't have to worry about me. I'm, I'm, I haven't actually even talked to anybody or seen anybody in a couple of weeks aside from my cat. And the fact that I'm talking to my cat in my apartment is more of a concern for me right now than necessarily a COVID thing. But I, again, we'll be doing it in a safe way at the Plaza.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, how did you figure out or have you figured out which stories you're going to focus on?
5: Well, I'm going to, uh, you know, some, uh, very often some of the books that, I've, that I have written and, and some of the Vancouver history that I focus on talks a little bit about sort of the nightclub uh, history of Vancouver or the entertainment history. And, of course, that always goes hand in hand with, uh, you know, with alcohol and, and, and drinks and whatnot, to a certain degree. It's the fuel and, and that, uh, that goes through the veins of, of so many of the nightclubs. So I'll talk a little bit about it, particularly the entertainment history, because that, in many ways... You know, some of the nightclubs in the city have been the, the people and the people running them have been the those who have been sort of the most on the forefront of trying to change or adapt or, or uh, you know, upgrade the, the liquor laws in the province. So a little bit about that a little bit about uh, just general history of the city and and uh, we'll have some
2: fun with it
0: <laughs> uh, because even in in one of your books uh, Vancouver After Dark uh, you take that deep dive into the the once wild nightlife that Vancouver w- was showing or that was that was in Vancouver where here we are in the middle of a pandemic where while well, some of that has come back certainly nothing like what we saw in the past
5: No that's that's very true yeah i mean it's uh, it, it's a, it's a really tough time it's a tough time now for a lot of the venues and whatnot as well you know uh, it, You know, many of the venues, big and small in the city, are you know are basically having to shut uh, at this point while we're still dealing with the virus. I hope that's going to change. I know there's all sorts of moves that many of the clubs are trying to do in terms of some you know virtual concerts and a way to still sort of people can socialize. But we're all hoping, of course, that's it's going to get back to what it used to be. Even we might not see that for a few months or next year.
0: Exactly. Uh, there is a certain irony or sweetness to this whole idea though that you will be talking about this wild nightlife but doing it at a plaza where people are distanced but they will be having a beverage if yes, they want.
5: Yeah, I think it'll be fun. It'll be uh, it'll be interesting and uh, uh, I think it'll be a, 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 I think that it's a nice sort of pilot project that the uh, that the uh, Canby Village Business Association has sponsored to get this going. And, in this particular pop-up plaza. Uh, and I think it'll be a fun thing and I hope it becomes a regular thing that we'll we'll see over the course of the summer. Uh,
0: do you think too? I mean, does it does it showcase or make us reflect a little bit more on this kind of troubled relationship and troubled history Vancouver has had with alcohol?
5: I think so. I think it's I, you know, that's one case I'll certainly make for it. But, you know, in as much as we've had these banners of no fun city and all these things that have gone on and and the and the rain of paperwork that city hall has often you know, poured on the bars and the nightclubs to sort of gauge how they're selling alcohol or even going back to the days of the old beer halls uh, and whatnot that limited what could be sold and what hours they were open. You know, there's always been people sort of pressing against that. And always there's there's always been people who have been putting on a, a night or a party somewhere, you know, that uh, have fought against some of those rules. And those quietly have sort of, uh, you know, exponentially progressed over the years to that, you know, we that we've in a better situation than we were. You know, really just a few years ago, we're, we're, we're taking a much more adult approach, I think, without fearing that the end of the world or the sky will fall if we open up one of these little zones. So I think it's a, I think it's a good move.
0: Uh, do you think there, there'll be the push then? Uh, because I think there's been that uh, whether it's restaurants being able to sell you a beer or a bottle of wine through a takeout window, these these changes that were made so quickly. Do you think there's going to be a push then uh, because they're all temporary to make them permanent?
5: I think so. I think that certainly the appetite for that will will I, I, will will be the case. No doubt, though, that some of these things are temporary, of course, and and we want to put the, uh, you know, the the right measures in place. But I think once we try these things out and we realize that they can work successfully, um, why not keep them?
0: Exactly. If people can be treated like adults and if they act responsibly like adults, you're absolutely right. Why not make it something that's just part of the fabric?
5: Mm -hmm. I think the city's progressed a little bit. We're a little bit more. We've reached a little bit more of an adult uh, point that we can we can do this, as I say, without the the thought of the sky falling when, when, when we put these, uh, pl- you know, these, these plazas in place.
0: Uh, and just getting back to what you're doing this evening. So when does it, you're, go- you're going to be doing this at the 17th and Canby Plaza for anybody in that uh, area. They'll know uh, exactly which one you're talking about. Uh, when, what time does it start and uh, what, and will people be able to get books? What will they do?
5: Yes. Uh, we'll get going around six o'clock. I'll be there about five thirty. You know, if somebody wants to come by earlier and say hi, but we'll get going around six and a, I'll be speaking for about maybe 30, 40 minutes, and well, then we'll have some, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes for some Q&A there. So we'll wrap up by about seven. I'll have some a bag of books with me in case somebody wants to snag one, um, But uh, and everybody's welcome. It's free to attend, and uh, I guess, as I say, it's not a huge space, so you you might want to get there a little bit early to get a seat, and if, it's, uh, if it gets a little too crowded, don't worry. I'll be talking at some other event sometime down the road, so. All right. You should be you should be set up. We
0: might have to move you for the next one to be on the Vancouver Art Gallery Plaza. Exactly.
5: Yeah. Even bigger. Yeah. I love it.
0: All right. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us today and good luck on the event tonight. Thanks very much. That is Aaron Chapman. He's an author, historian. His book, Vancouver After Dark, takes a look at the nightlife history of Vancouver, and he's going to be reading some excerpts from that at the plaza, 17th and Canby. That's starting at 6 p.m. And as he mentioned, that's not a huge plaza. So if you want to check it out, you might want to get there a little bit early. Well, even though we don't know at this point when we will be in a scenario where we can call it post-COVID-19 after the pandemic, there are a lot of people looking at what. what life will look like, whether it's city planning, how we deal with transit, how we build housing. Do we need not as many office buildings if people are going to make a permanent shift to working from home? Well, joining me to talk a bit more about this is Eric Villagomez with UBC, a lecturer at UBC's School of Community and Regional Planning. Thank you so much for being with us today.
6: Thank you. It's an honor to be here.
0: Uh, this looks at what cities specifically will look like after COVID nineteen. So, were you looking at how they're designed, or planned, or built? Or, or what were you focused on?
6: Actually, it's a it's a little bit of everything. Any the planning um, the planning discipline in general deals with uh, with kind of or a big chunk of it deals with regulations that impact built form. Um, So it's really all of these things that go across, whether it's in transportation, you have transportation planning, uh, urban design, urban planning. Uh, So we're kind of trying to go across all of these disciplines and and trying to get a sense of the transformations that are taking place and what the implications of that are.
0: What would you say is the biggest thing? I mean, we've seen things change so quickly, which a lot of people are saying is a positive, that it's cut down on red tape when it comes to plazas, when it comes to certain things. So what have you seen? What do you think is the most Kind of striking change so far.
6: Well, there have been so many of them uh, across the entire system, right? Whether it's uh, economic system or, or planning regulations, just like you said, there are uh, a number of things that would typically have taken uh, months, maybe years, to pass. Um, whether it's the transformation of particular spaces um, or the addition of, say, bike lanes or closing down of streets. And you're seeing these things actually taking place at a rapid rate. Um, and it's kind of in the, in the spirit, I'd like to, to say, of experimentation, which is great, right? Like things are being put into the world, uh, being constructed to see how people respond to them. Um, and then that will ultimately determine uh, their longevity, Right? So the ones that I think are the most popular will probably be around for a long time, uh, other ones that have been put out there, um, not so much. So you're seeing a whole bunch of things like cycling infrastructure is a, is a big thing that's happening in cities around the world, um, just because a lot of uh, people are uh, ambivalent to take transit, uh, and they're trying to different municipalities are still trying to cut down on, on car use. So you're seeing a whole bunch of uh, investments. Um, Rapid investments in cycling infrastructure um, that are taking place. You're seeing street closures. I was just recently, um, uh, recently uh, in a different part, uh, different parts of BC, um, and sure enough, a whole bunch of street closures that that weren't there. People enjoying the outdoors. People out in parks. Um, a little bit of leniency, of course. Uh, towards things like uh, having alcohol in parks and in the public, like all of these things are taking place. Um, and it's really interesting to to watch and and to kind of think about.
0: And those are things, uh, kind of the, the physical space uh, that people enjoy or that people are, are in. Do you think we'll see permanent changes, though, as far as I'm hearing from a lot of companies saying we're never going to go back to how it was with everybody coming in five days a week? It's going to be some kind of hybrid with people spending at least a couple of days at home. Is that going to change, say, the the building of office space?
6: Yeah so the the interior spaces are a really interesting issue because uh interior spaces were not designed for um for social distancing protocols, the six foot, the standard six foot. They're typically based on, and this is at the regulation level, they're based on three to four feet, which is kind of casual distances that people have with acquaintances and, and friends. And, you know, when you're talking to someone um, in the hallway, or usually it's about somewhere around three to four feet. So a lot of things are based on that. Um, and what we're seeing uh, from the interior design perspective um, is that it's very difficult to transform those very different than than the public realm that you can add infrastructure you can close streets etc you know when something's already built and you have you know hallways that are three feet wide you have very limited things that you can do so you're seeing a whole bunch of things that are happening for example um in open uh, open offices you're seeing a whole bunch of uh kind of you know, corridors between cubicles becoming one way, for example. So a one easy way to cut down on that is to make sure that some people stay at home. And I think that, uh, you know, as more time passes, um, a lot of these companies are adapting to that model. Uh, so you're seeing a lot more people working from home or coming in on, at different schedules, uh, just to alleviate that that pressure on the physical space. So I would assume that, a lot of that is actually going to continue going on. I know that um, for me, uh, in terms of the teaching that I do uh, at uh, at uh, UBC, uh, you know, uh, I've always kind of been uh, a little bit on top of the online thing, but more so, obviously, over the past few months. And uh, in response to that, uh, I'm thinking of changing my courses so that um, we do potentially have, you know, every two, three weeks, we have an online day because there's actually... Um, a lot of benefits that unexpectedly came out of that in terms of um, cutting down commuting time for students, which a lot of students have found um, phenomenal, right? So Mm -hmm. I I think you're going to probably see not only across the the corporate landscape, but also across uh, the educational landscape that there is going to be a little bit more leniency and understanding towards um, uh, different types of scheduling online and in person.
0: And do you think that will have an impact on things like transit if we don't have people commuting Monday to Friday, 9 to 5?
6: Yeah, it's the transit question is is a difficult one, and uh, you know, um, Translink is doing all they can. You know, I recently went on uh, on the SkyTrain, and you know, it's pristine. I've never seen it as pristine <laughs> as that. Um, so they're doing their best to try and and um, you know, calm people's anxieties around transit, but it's very difficult to to see how um, how they will adapt o- over the long term. It, you know, transit like many things. Um, but transit in particular is really based on congestion, on people, trying to get as many people as possible across a city or across a particular landscape and terrain. So that, that's the business model that's there. So it's going to be interesting to see how they adapt to that. That's a big question mark in terms of how quickly they will bounce back or not um, and whether they're going to need to kind of readjust um, whether it's in terms of um, fees for, for tickets or whether there's just a different funding model that allows uh, some of these these trains, et cetera, to, to run at lower than designed for capacities. Um, but uh, again, that goes hand in hand with a lot of the issues that we're discussing. You know, are more people or less people going to work uh, and at what times? Uh, you might see a kind of redistribution of, of the so-called kind of rush hour. That's a possibility, right, where more people go in at different times Um, that, again, might equalize. But again, a lot of it is is unknown right now.
0: And just one other question. When we look at at cities, are there other cities that are already doing things that maybe are more pandemic-friendly? I'm just thinking of plazas, because plazas in European cities have been far more utilized and popular than they are, it seems, than they are in North American cities. Will we kind of adopt maybe what we've seen in other cities?
6: Yeah, I believe so. I believe that it's taking a different form here, um, you know, I think, uh, and I'm sure you've probably experienced the same, is you go into the local parks here and a lot of them are just being very well used. They're not unlike um, um, public plazas in Europe. Uh, and the same types of activities are kind of going on there, right? So uh, you have picnics, you have people informally with alcohol, having friends, and, and uh, you see obviously a lot of recreational activities from t- slacklining uh, to Frisbee. to. So you're seeing those getting a lot more... Um, used uh, in terms of just overall, uh, and my sense is that that people are enjoying. It. Every time I talk to people, they're they're saying that this is that's a, a really good part of um, uh, the situation that we're in right now. And my sense is that there will be kind of a little mix of. Uh, more potential public spaces created by municipalities that allow that, but also, again, leveraging uh, a lot of the open spaces that we have in our cities here, which is very different than in Europe. In Europe, they don't have the the degree, most of them don't have um, as many parks and open spaces in that way as we do, uh, versus they have the public plazas, we have, you know, Stanley Park, right? Like these are just very different, different things, but they're all part of an open space system that can be used. So my sense is that you're going to see something similar happening, but it's going to take a different form here in North America and in Canada.
0: All right. We will leave it there for today. Eric, thank you so much. Uh, Great chatting with you.
6: Thank you.
5: It was a pleasure.
0: That is Eric Villagomez, a lecturer at UBC's School of Community and Regional Planning.